Welcome to episode number four with Lisa Starita, who built up product marketing and before that customer success for Beekeeper. She's actually been one of the 10 first employees and uh, we learned a lot today about how to do establish that from very early on and how the role changes over time as well. So uh, just listen in, learn uh, from the best on customer success and product marketing, which is still both very young disciplines in Switzerland and uh, enjoy. Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining us on today's episode of uh, B2B Texas Stars. Uh, Patrick, thanks for co-hosting, making this a natural conversation as well. Uh, Lisa, you've been, I think, product um, marketing lead lastly on uh, Beekeeper, but actually joined the company nearly six years ago by now. You've been employee number six, if I remember correctly. And uh, we had the natural chat a while ago, uh, which I found very interesting, your thoughts on how to build customer success management from scratch. And as you mentioned, selling is great, but a working, a working product is also key and how you can best enable sales with uh, great product marketing. So why don't you tell us a bit more about yourself and like how you actually ended up on this entrepreneurship journey after working for Rolls-Royce earlier? <laughs> Thank you, Manuel, for the quick intro. That was a lot of... Uh... A lot of information in it. Um, so, yeah, so I spent the last uh, five years or so at Beekeeper. Um, I started in a completely different field um, in the fine art business, to be honest with you. So the journey is even more complicated than that. And uh, various steps in my life brought me to entrepreneurs, entrepreneurship, and into a deep interest in uh, scaling and uh, growing startups scale up so growing successful businesses around the good product so um this uh, has brought me to zurich at some point and uh, as i said i joined big for a sixth employee uh, and at the time um we started having a couple of customers but there was nobody who was really taking care of the um post sale uh, mm -hmm. process. so that's what i did at first i kind of built up um or helped build up the majority of our um, customer-facing activities, strategies, processes, how do we implement the product, what makes customers tick, what do we do now, what are the priorities early on, what do we do later to maybe scale the customer success function. Um, I did that for a couple of years and I then decided that I wanted to move on to uh, uh, move up to something that was a bit more um, strategic perhaps. Mm -hmm and decided to um, start building up the customer success operations. So um, at that point we had people, we had a team that was, uh, um, that was looking after customers. So I started thinking about uh, what are the tools that we need to enable this team to work efficiently, successfully. Um, how do we train our people? Uh, how do we measure success of customers? What do we, what yep. type of core cards do we build? And uh, um, how do we make this a scalable and repeatable process? One thing I find very interesting, what you mentioned is like, I built up customer success from scratch and I think we keep it growing from six to, well, basically initially three to 200 plus people by now, probably. Yeah, you mentioned like I built up customer success management and then I wanted to do something more strategic. Yeah. I think customer success is probably the most strategic thing in a company you can do because, especially in a software as a service company, because churn prevents growth, right? Absolutely. Yeah, really, you are absolutely right on this point. I mean, yeah, customer success needs to be extremely strategic. 
Um, and uh, um, it needs to be really strategic because at the end, it's you know, and we we're talking about these earlier as well. It's very much of a um, of a consulting process at the beginning. So there's a lot of strategy that goes into that. Um, yes, at the very beginning, when you do customer success, what you do is you have a product that you think it works and deliver a specific type of value, and your um, your function or your objective is to making sure that you deliver this value and you deliver as much of it as you possibly can. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, that, that is very strategic. Um, I mentioned uh, going into something for me more strategic uh, because at that point I had done this dozens of times and I was getting to a stage where I wanted to do something that was new for me. Uh, so, so you mean the function itself is highly strategic, but what you mentioned is like working like a consultant earlier because you just do things that don't scale, how Paul Graham out of Y Combinator puts it. And at one point, if you do something a hundred times, you need to basically transfer it from being a service to the product taking care of that. Yes, yes and no. It depends a lot on the product in reality. Um, but yes, um, effectively, what you're doing is um, you have a product, you identify how, how you deliver value through this product based on what your customer wants. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, that is a very manual process. You have to figure it out. Most of the times, you don't really know that. And uh, at some point, you get to a stage where you think, okay, I've done this you know, a few times, maybe a dozen times. I know that this is the steps that I have to take to get to this objective to effectively renew my contract. Because yeah. at the end, the value means I have a customer who's willing to renew the contract, upsell, or whatever it is. And, uh, um, and you want to scale a team. And you, just, you can't turn a team of SaaS customer success managers into a team of consultants. That's not going to scale, <laughs> right? So, um, exactly. So you start um, effectively doing what is called professional services for free until you figure out where you really deliver your value. And mm -hmm. at some point, you need to turn this into something that you can either charge for, so that needs to be real value in there, or that you can automate. There is not much in between, right? And so that's where um, that's where moving into operations became for me an interesting position because at that point it was a matter of what do we automate out of this process, out of what we do with CS, um, what do we transform in professional services, what we can what can we charge for it, um, how do we segment our customers? Maybe there are some that are more willing to pay than others, and yeah. what type of people do we need in the team to um, deliver the professional service or deliver an automated onboarding? Right? Yeah. yeah. When you started, Lisa, what was your or what were your biggest challenges and how did you solve those? Yeah, so I think my first biggest challenge was really to figure out um, or to figure out does this onboarding because effectively we we were we considered customer success from the moment you close the contract the entire onboarding process of a customer, so the implementation, and then the continuous success. <laughs> and uh, the first question was, uh, is this onboarding process that we're putting into place, is it actually bringing the customer to a stage where they can, uh, um, they can profit from the product? So are they sufficiently onboarded that they can see continuous success? Or is there some work that I have to do afterwards? And um, and this is a so where does the onboarding of my customer really finishes? 
the moment I've mm-hmm. you know deployed their their instance of my product or whatever it is, is that where the onboarding finishes or not? Mm-hmm. That was the big question. Um, and then you really find out by being close to them, um, keeping it, you know, working constantly with them. And also the, the ultimate answer is the renewed contract, right? But you wait whatever time that you have available to you as a contract lifetime, contract time to figure out is this really working, monitoring it all throughout the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The second question was uh, really a matter of scalability because at some point I was doing maybe 15 onboardings at the same time and I had 15 customers in success phase. Yeah. And then, and that's where like where I was like, okay, this is my capacity. We know that one person can help with 30 accounts. Yeah. So once mm-hmm. we have hundreds, how do we do this, right? We need to increase this number. And so on. Yeah. How do you see regarding the scalability this the examination of scalability and there with like customer success in the sense of like happiness versus profitability and growth? It's a very good question. Um, it really needs to change depending on the maturity of your business and your product. Um, right? So at the very beginning, um, probably, well, it really depends on the product that you sell as well, right? Is it a product that uh, delivers value principally or is it a product that requires some professional services to deliver mm-hmm. value to the customer? So um, it's a difficult question to answer in a few words. Um, but based on my experience, the um, automation, hence the profitability of your customer success or customer post-sale services uh, comes over time. And there is various stages that you need to go through uh, where you increase the profitability of this function of this service that you provide um, by increasing the automation or the scalability, or maybe you build it into the product. So do you see customer success management more as a profit or a cost center in that terms? Mm -hmm. Because still people see it sometimes as customer support is something that costs money and you should automate the hell away of it. And sales, for example, things completely different about the function as such. Yeah, yeah. it's very simple. Um, Think think about it. Um, Can you, can your product alone, without a form of service or success on top of it, be um, generate value to your customers on a long, on a long time frame? So we're talking about lifetime value of customer. Yeah. Can you generate lifetime value to a customer and potential upselling opportunities without a person behind who does the work? If the answer is yes, maybe maybe you should automate this. Mm-hmm. But I understand uh, you didn't talk about basic, uh, for instance, upselling or, or yeah. increasing the revenue. Do you think that's also um, the in or customer success who's responsible for this, or is that? different or is that sales or account managers or, or who else or whatever they, that's yeah. a very debatable topic um lots of companies do it differently uh, there is plenty of companies particularly when they're very mature that they uh, position upselling opportunities and contract renewal on the cs function mm-hmm. uh, it's very normal to do that i've seen it in a lot of com- SaaS companies in the us for instance um when i was uh, doing cs um upsell and renewals were with sales. And there was a very simple reason for that. Uh, the awareness of a sales rep 
who uh, closes a customer and has the responsibility of renewing them. So it was rather a matter of building awareness among the sales function of uh, whoever you're closing is going to be on your quota next year for them to renew them. And this created a wonderful relationship between the CSM, who was really focused on delivering the value, and also because the onboarding process at the time was very time consuming for CSM. So mm -hmm. CSM was focused on delivering the value, and there was a great collaboration throughout the contract lifetime with the sales rep who was very keen in making sure that the content was going to get renewed. To, to which extent do you feel it's it's entirely feasible or it is also very difficult to have this hunter mindset and like a customer success management farming mindset at the same time? I think you can train people on this. The, the farmer mindset, there are two different types of people. There are the hunters and the farmers. So yeah, which I mean is having one person doing the same at at this at the same time yeah you um you start by having farmers as customer success managers early on because that's the mentality that you need uh, to deliver value on the product hmm. um but uh, while you move into the maturity of the organization it's up to you to decide where you want to put this renewal type of responsibility and if you want to put it on CS, I have seen lots of organizations either restructuring their CX function so that they leave some people like exclusively farmers, maybe doing the onboarding, the implementation, whatever it is, and some people taking care of the long-term success of the customer and of the renewal. Or you do some sales training with your customer success team so that they have the basic skills to renew their already existing customers. Yeah, it's very interesting because what you just said, the model that you were having or that you had at the beginning, you know, that the hunters, those who closed deals were also responsible for the upsell afterwards. Because I believe um, the, the upselling, to do an upselling, okay, the relationship is important for sure. But I mean, you build that as well, right? When you, when you, when you support or when you help the customer and when you, when you make it successful in this environment. And so the hunter is put into a position when he has to do the upsell where actually farmer skills are necessary. You need to know the people very well, but he was kind of a hunter when he got that customer. So you put him, don't you feel like you put him into a position because I, I, I talk about my own experience because I had to do that as well. In my former company, I was responsible for the, for the close and I was, still responsible all throughout the, the rollout and then for the renewal. But the problem was I wasn't in contact for quite some time, you know, for, for a month or for two months with yeah. the customer. I didn't, I was focusing on getting new ones. I wasn't focusing yeah. on keeping the old ones because I was like, well, rollout needs to be successful and they can do it successfully. I was, uh, was you know, they were good at what they did. So I was like, oh, I don't have to be part of this. So I was put into a situation where I didn't feel very, very good at either. I wasn't, I'm not a farmer. I'm not a good at farmer. <laughs> but um, I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, having a Salesforce reminder that tells you, hey, your contract is six months in, drop an email to your customers to see how they're doing, or your contract renewal is due in two months, give them a call and see if they're happy and you know work with the CSM to make sure, or to check with the CSM what's the situation. That's a very, very short, um, short, you know, kind of 
um, effort from your side. And then there is another element that I think it's important um, that I think it's in, it's important in this, um, which is, and now this is slipping out of my mind. Sorry about that. Um, but yeah, there is an element which is um, it's important for you to uh, have a relationship to an extent. So mm -hmm. what I was trying to get to, now it's coming back. What I was trying to get to is the following. Um, at least when I did, um, when I was in this position, often the sale was done with a specific stakeholder in the organization, mm -hmm. but the implementation was often with a project manager. They're not yeah. the same people. Yeah. So I, as a farmer, had a relationship with a project manager that was really strong, but the um, the person who signed the contract and who's going to sign the renewal is the person who had a relationship with you, Patrick. Yeah, indeed. I think in negotiation, that's what you call what is nothing without how, right? Yeah. And you can use you can use it. Project managers, for example, use that to block deals sometimes as well. Even yeah. if you sold it, I had a deal and we sold it to the chief digital officer, head of marketplace, head of IT, head of product information management system. Then, and after seven people in the room, the chief digital officer, fantastic guy, basically said, "Now you need to convince Sven." Yeah. like who the fuck is Sven and the yeah. guy was like head of content and we worked kind of on content management and the person was just in no mood because he probably felt left out which he was we didn't know the guy exists and he's like I don't have a problem I'm not gonna do this and the deal didn't go through yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. and he he never experienced the value of the working product because like the discussion we had was more on a strategic level to build the marketplace and scale it, but he didn't never seen the product. So you mentioned a bit also that regarding selling is great, but a working product is key. There's always a lot of opinions from product management, from sales, from customer success, from the yeah. CEO, from investors, how to shape the product roadmap. How far do you go to basically sell a product that's not yet finished or that's maybe even an edge use case? of a customer yeah that's a topic i've seen so many discussions on this topic in my life <laughs> yeah. at all stages of maturity of companies all not just in companies where i worked both in companies where i had you know marginal contact that's been a discussion forever um and it always comes in different shapes and forms but the concept is um you um whoever is at the front, forefront of the market, so whoever is the sales rep effectively, it's trying to either bring a product uh, or use the product for a use case that it hasn't been thought about or it hasn't been thought for that use case, or alternatively, it's trying to push a new function onto the product that really is not, it doesn't exist. So yeah. where is the, um, which one of the two this is, it depends on situation to situation, but, um, my general take on this is I think it's important as a sales rep to be ambitious and creative in the way you bring the product to the market because um, as much as the product team and the marketing team will try and whoever else is next to you will try to understand the market as much as possible, realistically, you're the one who talks to the customers every day. So you do have this insight. There's nothing you can do about it. But um, think about the long-term implications of, of your dealers. Yeah. Think about, I think that's what is important at the end, right? So uh, if you can, 
if you can deliver the value that you you sell with the not yet working product as a product but you can deliver it as a service or you, you can pull it off and the customer is happy but it's not the product delivering the value yeah um should you still say like hey that's what the product does or should you just be very honest and say like hey this kind of ai automation platform thing it's actually a person delivering that value for you right now yeah manually i think it's important it depends a lot on the maturity of the business yeah. uh, and of the product if you have a product that is early stage and you're exploring the market 100 percent sell something that you don't have yet as long as you have a strong or relatively strong product team backing you thinking this is a good use case let's build this we are still agile enough exactly to do that we still have a code base that it's young or clean enough to do something like that mm -hmm. deliver this um if you are an organization that has been going for a few years your product has a clear strategic direction you're planning to do things and you as a sales rep and everyone else is selling something else and you as a sales rep come around, comes around and say says, I want to send into this industry for this use case, and I think it's really cool and it's going to bring in a lot of money, <laughs> and you're the only one who wants to do that, think about this. <laughs> do, you, <laughs> do you have any bad experiences where that happened? Um, I'm, I'm not going to name names and do no, that's so yeah. exactly. Um, but I have experiences, I have seen um, reps or even whole teams um, trying to um, deliver certain use cases. And I think it can get very dangerous sometimes because if you have a product that could deliver a use case superficially, but in reality, um, in reality, um, selling a use case like that will put you into a loophole of regulations, of demands, of mm -hmm. various uh, various forms. So I've seen teams um, selling use cases that then have a have a um, legal implication. Yeah. And yeah. if it has a legal implication, it becomes something that your product really has to to build. You know, it's yeah, it's, yeah. Because otherwise, the value is zero if you cannot get it through like an audit or like my wife works in like the life science industry, and if you don't get an FTA approval, the whole thing is useless because the value is anything between. 1 billion and zero depending on if you get that approval or not exactly yeah or you can use it you can use it in emergency situations or you can use it for emergency situations and as long as everything is okay you're fine but yeah. the moment something goes goes down then you're legally responsible for that damage that's a mm -hmm. massive question yeah. right yeah yeah how do you go ahead I'd love to hear one uh, you, your be best practice on one challenge I have seen a lot in customer success. So your customers um, have a lot of requests sometimes, right? They they want this feature, that feature, and this. How did you solve that, or how did you go about this? Mm -hmm. I did a whole podcast on this topic, so it's a long conversation. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> my two cents are: um, we implemented. Relatively early on, we implemented some form of uh, systems to collect, so some form of visibility to collect these requests mm -hmm. and uh, to channel them back to the product team. At the time, I was still on CS. It was actually one of the big projects I was working on when I was mm -hmm. uh, doing customer success operations. Um, how do we channel this feedback from the customer success managers or the sales team onto the product team? And then it's their responsibility to, to filter this. 
We started with an Excel sheet, which is the simplest thing you can possibly do. Uh, then we had a special um, line item in Salesforce. Uh, and then we started uh, um, acquire, you know, utilizing SaaS tools for this. Um, and this moved, and the, the learning that I did, which I think Patrick answered your question, is, um, the, again, the maturity of your organization and your product and everything will play a role. But generally, over time, this information needs to move more and more from being information owned by the customer-facing functions sales and CS, to an information owned by the product management function. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. essential. And I think it's essential that the sales team, who or the CS team, but often the sales in particular, who are particularly passionate about what is the next feature that we need to build, and they're passionate about it because that's what makes them close deals, they accept the fact that this, this choice and this knowledge is something that is owned by product management. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We're tackling an interesting one on uh, on kind of team structure and when do you hire people as a startup? Because Patrick and I work with a lot of like uh, growth companies, like anything from two people to like twenty people. And yeah. you mentioned now this function of product management, account executive, customer success, even the information uh, owner in that sense. What should be the structure and who do you hire first after like the founder you started as employee number six for customer success? When do you invest into having somebody full-time on product management versus somebody second on customer success? And how is the should yeah. the range you be? Um, depends on your organization, depends on the product. In, in, a, in a B2B uh, software as a service yeah. business, yeah. growing um, from 10 to 50 employees. Yeah, so um, in my past experiences, we took, we started doing full-time product management, proper full-time product management a bit late. This was still shared, uh, it was still a responsibility of the CTO who was also heading engineering for a long time. Um, and, uh, and I think, so, uh, at least uh, in some of the companies I work with, uh, in some companies, product, product grew and engineering grew faster than business, sales mm -hmm. and marketing. In other companies, it was the opposite. So many organizations do it differently. Um, my take is it's very simple. You start with sales and engineering. Some form of PM or product management, you need it from early on because you need to think about what do I build and why do I build it and what's the value <laughs> So you need product management from day one. You don't need CS from day one. You need customer success when you start having uh, some customers to really deliver the product. Mm -hmm. Customer success, account management, operations, whatever you want to call it. But delivering the product or implementing the product starts when you've closed the customer. So sales comes first before customer success. So it's basically one sales to sell the product, engineering to build the product. Then it's basically with engineering. Yeah, then it's basically success management to make sure people stay and they still want the product and give you feedback. And then it's basically once you get enough feedback and enough horsepower behind it to have somebody doing product management on a more full time basis, keeping everybody together. Yeah. Um, yes, that makes sense. And it's generalistic. Yes, that makes sense. Uh, the one thing you have to think about is you need some form of product management with engineering from day one because you're engineers and not product managers, right? <laughs> how to build it but not what to build. 
So if that capacity of product management will be enough for you until you have customer feedback, that depends on your product. A mistake or what I would consider a mistake that I would not go into is considering your success manager a product manager. That's not the same thing. Yeah. So that's an important thing to separate. You do need someone who sits in the back end of the organization with engineering and thinks about what do we build next. And that's not the person who talks to the customers. And it's also not the product marketing manager, right? Because that's a term in Switzerland. Many founders are not so familiar with it. And it's this thing like, I'll go teach a class on design thinking that a lot of people think like, okay, I design stuff, I think, so I'm a design thinking guy, which is not the case. No, what no. is it exactly is a product marketing manager doing? A product marketing manager is, again, this is a term that's um, it's even less used, at least in the Swiss industry, than, than customer success, which per se is a very new term. <laughs> so um, it's even more of a question mark. Um, product marketing is a function that sits between marketing, sales, and product management. And yes, exactly. Um, in an early stage organization, product marketing is your first marketing hire. Mm -hmm. It's effectively someone who is building the marketing or the market space for your product, right? Yeah. It's the person who is sitting so if you, if you hire a marketing person, it's a person who's figuring out what's the value proposition of your product? How do I bring it to market? Um, why, why would customers buy my product and not a competitor's product? So what's the competitive landscape around us? What are unique selling points? Um, and, and these kind of things. What differentiates us from, from someone else? Uh, what is the pitch that works best? But then, because they're a first marketing hire, they also do the digital marketing, they also do the branding, they also do all the other <laughs> There are more kind of different branches of marketing, right? Because there is digital, there is, there is content, there is, uh, there is content marketing, there is, uh, and so on and so forth, right? There is branding and so on and so forth. Once the organization grows, when your marketing team grows, product marketing remains a function in the company, but it became, becomes a function that is much more connected to product management. So mm -hmm. I started product marketing um, in my organization uh, in 2017. By that point, we were close to 100 people in the organization. And we had an established product marketing team, um, excuse me, an established marketing team. And I was doing product marketing in a relatively mature startup by, yeah. by the like scale-up. And it looked completely different from what I described two minutes ago. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. uh, from your five plus years with like such a fast growing company like Beekeeper, what was kind of your biggest kind of question mark on your next step when your role evolved as well? Because sometimes you do stuff in a startup which you didn't sign up for, right? Yes, obviously. That, that's part of being a startup. That's the fun of it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But what, what was what was the one moment where you think like a am I ready to take on this new challenge and b is this really where I want to go as a professional? <laughs> um, so one thing I learned from seven years, more than seven years in startups, is you never have the time to ask yourself, "Am I ready for the new challenge?" Because the new <laughs> challenge usually comes faster than whether <laughs> you ask yourself the question. So um, that's to answer your first point. 
um, challenges arrive or are thrown at you by circumstances, uh, managers, organizational needs, or whatever it is, or your own entrepreneurial spirit. Um, and uh, the question is, goes very fast. You decide to take it or not based on what the choices are. My interest, it, it has happened to me to go through a situation where I think this, this thing is not right for the career path that I want to take. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that was a matter of deciding I'll take it anyway because it's it helps me to learn something, even though it's not the ideal position, or no, I don't take it. And you know what? I'll do it for a few months and then move on to the next one because, well, in the meantime, I'll look for something else yep. because that's really not going to work. Mm -hmm. um, but my general experience has always been because these companies change so fast and because the roles evolve so fast, something that three months ago looked not at all what you wanted to do or not at all what was the right thing for you, <laughs> it could in three months' time look extremely interesting. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I had, I guess, about the same experience, I'd say. <laughs> I have another question to the marketing part. Um, yeah. What what I, I understand you do outbound, right, with the sales team, and when it comes to other marketing channels, what what else are you using or would you recommend to startups such as or or scale up such as Beekeeper uh, to to focus on, or how can you find out what what could be uh, potential channels? Um, so when I was in marketing, as a product marketing, as a product marketing, um, my role was really supporting the product management and the sales team. Too. Mm -hmm. So I was not that involved in the actual outbound that was done by field marketing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but said that um, there is uh, pure and simple figure out who are your target audience and reach out to them. Um, there is uh, digital advertising of some sort. There is account-based marketing. If you mm -hmm. go by enterprise and you're mature enough and senior enough to do something like that. Um, there is content marketing, which works really well for a lot of organizations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the first thing, so the first thing you said at the at the beginning about when we got into product marketing, so you you suggest first to build up the product marketing part in a in an early startup, like to think about who is your competitors, uh, do a market analysis and think product positioning, do that first and then go further and and yes. decide what kind. That's that's what I understood or what I wrote down. Is that, yes. that's correct? Okay, that's correct because um, it's simple. You need to know who to sell to before you sell it to them. Yeah. yeah, and you have to need to know what makes them stick with your product. And again, you're in a very early stage organization, so you have a product marketing manager, which is the only marketing person, a product manager and a sales guy or a sales woman, if you want, and the three of you are figuring these things out. But one is out there talking to potential customers. One is with the engineering team. The product manager is with the engineering team figuring out what we build next, and you have a marketer who's analyzing the market and collaborating with the salesperson on this. Yeah. And once you figure that out, then you pump your money or your resources into scaling this, uh, this outbound effort. But first you need to know why does, does a customer buy yeah. my product instead of my competitor's product? And that, that's, a, that's an 
I find it at least an interesting observation from the scale-ups I work with, like seven-digit revenue, and basically like the various startups that launch with zero to 100K revenue that they kind of ask for the opposite things, what you would recommend naturally from our conversations, whether well, the scale-ups ask for process and scripts and CRM, and they somehow made it to seven-digit amounts of money without the CRM sometimes, and basically, <laughs> which is interesting, congrats to that. And the, the people just launching, basically doing 50K a year with maybe like anything like two to five people, they basically like, oh, I want to do paid advertisement. Which channel should I use? It's like, yeah. do you know your ideal customer provenance? And no, but let's just burn money fast, right? Yeah. In other words, yeah. what's what's the number one or what are the top three sales assets you recommend startups to get together first before they start going out to the market and be successful at it? Um, a demo account, a very good demo account of your product. Yeah. Very nicely done, so much that your customer goes like, wow, this looks exactly like what I would like to have on my laptop right now. Cool. Um, yeah. And then the second one is a good sales deck to send to them afterwards. Mm -hmm. Or some form of what it could even be a one-pager or it can be a three-pager sales deck. doesn't need to be long, but something that they remember you. And um, a third asset, a good video. What is an extended about? video or a productized video follow-up? Uh, I think, again, it depends on what your product is, who you're selling to, how you position it, and so on and so forth. Are you selling to a super large enterprise where there's going to be a lot of back and forth? The more professional and large you look, the better. So you want a nice brand video. Mm. Um, you're selling to a niche or quite technical uh, audience who wants to know how this works and the uh, it's not a very large group of people or stakeholders that you need to get on board, then a product video is probably going to work better. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Maybe also getting towards the end of this. Uh, Patrick, do you have one last question? Then I'd, I'd have one. I have one last question in, indeed. Um, going back again to the customer success part, one thing I had in mind or a question that, that I have is, I feel like customer success, similar to sales, you could hire people who don't have any experience in that function necessarily, right? Because you can build up a lot of what you learn in the, in the, in the job and it's much more important to have the right, maybe like the right values and, and certain capabilities or um, what do you think, what would, when I would want to become a customer success person, what, what do I need? What do I need? Uh, what, what, what would be the best to have to, to, to become that? Um, soft skills, is that what you're looking soft, for? Yeah, exactly. Patience. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. yeah. So you cannot actually copy it. We don't have that much. Yes, you can't. You can't say in the job interview. You know the the usual. What is your weakness? Oh, I'm impatient. You can't bring that. <laughs> Not a good one. <laughs> yeah, I know. Another one that I think is extremely important is the mindset of a teacher. It depends a lot on the product that you're implementing. But for whatever product you have, if you're trying to get your customer to adopt your product, you're going to have to teach it to them one way or the other. Mm -hmm. So the mindset of an educator um, is fundamental to do this transition of knowledge in a way that it's not too heavy for a person on the other side. Right? Yeah. 
Um, so you're going to do a lot of support tickets. So you need to be patient and you need to be a bit technical. <laughs> you need to be very inventive because the way you implement your product will change by day by day. So you will learn new things about what makes the product tick and you will need to bring them back into your processes somehow. Yeah. And you need to be an educator because you're teaching people how to do stuff. That's cool. Thank you. Interesting. That's yeah. very interesting indeed. Uh, Lisa, like maybe just if you want to talk about it, like you spend now seven plus years in the mostly software as a service uh, startup scale up world. What, what's next for you? Where do you want to go in the next six months and three years, basically? That's a very good question. Um, I'd like to, I have a lot of ideas in mind, and none of them is concrete enough to tell you that's my next step. Um, but um, what I'd really like to do is to help scale as startups that enter the scale up phase to um to get up and running i have experienced on my own skin how everyone is so busy getting the business to to you know to keep on making money and keep on functioning yeah. that they forget that you need a whole lot of structure to scale these in a way that it won't hurt too much internally and and it will be actually as much as possible efficient. Yeah. And um, and I think, yeah, I think I think this is a really interesting field, and I'd love to scale up to that and help scale ups do that. Nice. But yeah, that's pitch. one of the million ideas I have. So. <laughs> good good sales pitch. So, uh, people listening here, like, reach out to Lisa Starita on LinkedIn or any other channel that you prefer. Um, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> This is a sales podcast after all, right? Uh, thanks so much for sharing these insights, Lisa. And uh, like, really looking forward to keep in touch. Any last thing you'd like to say can be anything on scale-ups, on customer success, or on product marketing? No, I think the only thing I'd like to say is this was really fun. Patrick, Manuel, it was great. And yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for like this, really. Thanks for your insights, Lisa. It was, was great having you here and we wish you all the best. And if we have customers who need help in customer success, you will surely yeah. hear from us. Happy to.